Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Support for this Public Radio International program comes from the Humankind Program Fund, this station and PRI stations nationwide, and from the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and the Ford Foundation. I love to quote uh, William Hastie, the first black uh, judge in this country at a federal level. He said, democracy is not being, it is becoming. It is easily lost, but never finally won. So it is a sense of an adventure. Democracy is this great, adventurous journey that each generation is on together. When America's founders established our system of self-government, they created a union of citizens. You're listening to a Humankind Special. I'm David Freudberg. I'm in Washington in the chamber of the enormous Lincoln Memorial. The last time I stood here was as a child. The fact that I've grown up since leaves me feeling no less dwarfed by this gigantic statue or by this gigantic American. It was Lincoln at Gettysburg who resolved that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But what does it mean for this union of citizens we call the United States to be of the people and by the people? What does it mean for us to be citizens of a democracy? Lincoln, and further back, our founders understood that without an engaged citizenry, without people who feel a sense of ownership, who enjoy being part of the process of creating the lives they want for themselves, their children, their communities, without that, there is no freedom, there is no democracy, there is no possibility of creating a world worthy of our highest selves. Francis Moore LaPay is author of Democracy's Edge. And so, I think the understanding of the threat of tyranny always being present meant that they understood that without that active engagement, that tyranny would emerge. I think President Lincoln was saying, in effect, that our government, this democracy, is a government that is controlled by its citizens. U.S. Representative John Lewis, Democrat of Georgia. That it is not controlled by a president, a Congress, or a Supreme Court, but by the will and the power and the spirit of its people. America is still tinkering in the laboratory of our democracy. We've come a long way since the early days when only white male property owners were accorded the rights of citizenship. That was so 18th century. 
But what are the duties of a citizen in the 21st century? John Bogle, the visionary investor who founded Vanguard, chaired the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia for eight years. Today, uh, we have a much truer democracy, but a democracy where I think we've lost sight of a lot of the substance of what it requires to be a good citizen. Uh, Not enough depth of thinking and not enough clarity of expression of ideas. not enough willingness to take some responsibility uh, for what happens in this country of ours. We, we have an awful lot of people in this great nation who demand the rights of citizenship, but haven't, I think, spent any time at all on the responsibilities of citizenship. And at the top of that list of responsibilities, I, for one, would put education, information. Here we are in the information age, and uh, there may be a lot of information out there. Um, there may even be a fair amount of knowledge out there, But I think wisdom is a quality quite lacking uh, in today's democracy for the the vast majority. And therefore, we have kind of a lowest common denominator democracy. Well, most people have busy lives. They're not political junkies. And a lot of Americans just don't follow current events very closely. Four out of ten eligible voters don't go to the polls when we elect the president in a good year. Turnout for local elections is much lower. The fact is a lot of Americans remain on the sidelines because they feel unconnected, alienated from the process. So on the steps leading to the great pillars of the Lincoln Memorial on a gray afternoon, among tourists snapping photographs with their cell phones, I asked a variety of people about our system of self-government. Every little bit counts, so I think if, if everyone has the attitude that it's only special interest, then it will, that's how it will end up. I think if you have a concern, you need to act on it. And you, if you have an opinion, you need to act on it. And one person is two people, is four people, is eight people, is, and it's power in numbers. So you're saying the system still has the potential to, yes. to function in a very representative way? Right. People have to be, you know, have, be committed to it and ha- have an opinion and act, voice, on, voice that opinion and act on it. And, you know, not just sit back and expect the government to sort of work by itself. It, it's for the people, then you have to do something. Well, I think too much power is in the hands of the, um, of the president. He's done too many things to lead this country astray. He has all the power. The people have, the power has, has been taken away from the people. 9-11 um, gave them an opportunity to take the power from them. We lost a lot of rights after 9-11, put it in his hands. One of the things that uh, coming to Washington, D.C., seeing the variety of people that are here, and all the people that are here, no matter what their ethnic background is, no matter where they're coming from, have a sense of pride in the government. So you're appreciating the diversity? I'm appreciating the diversity in all the uh, monuments, in all the, uh, I don't know, the Yarland Cemetery. It's just an incredible amount of diversity of people of all walks of life and, and uh, important people that have made you know, important things happen for the United States, and it's the common man. I don't think the small people has a chance in this world. I think it's all the money and the greed. I think we're just sending us to war and, you know, that be it. I don't think that's right. Well, most of the time the kids that's going to war is these kids that, that can't afford to go to college and lives in states that doesn't have college that pays for their first couple years, and they wind up signing up. Almost all of my son's senior class in Alabama signed up so that they could get college paid for because we don't have that down there. 
and the jobs down there has all been moved. When they changed it to where jobs went overseas, everything just about shut down in so many areas that there was nothing. The generation that founded America in the late 1700s felt burned by what they saw as governmental abuse by the British. Without representatives to hold accountable in elections and without a Bill of Rights, ordinary people were the ruled, not the rulers. As Mark Twain later observed, citizenship is what makes a republic. Monarchies can get along without it. Francis Moore LaPay. I think that there was a pretty deep understanding among our founders in many sense, that power concentrates to itself and that under conditions of concentrated power, extreme power differentials, extreme inequities in power, that brutality is almost certain to emerge. And certainly now with the benefit of history and our capacity to to actually read so much well-recorded history, whether we're talking about the Holocaust or we're talking about more recent genocides, that the evidence is in that human beings in conditions of extreme power imbalances, I think now of Abu Ghraib, uh, we will brutalize one another. Uh, we have that in us. And so it is a, it's a sobering, sobering realization. And yet it is also freeing because with this understanding, we know what it takes to avoid brutalizing one another, to avoid horrendous uh, acts of um, inhumanity. And we know that one of those conditions is the dispersion of power, the conditions necessary for us to be fully human in the best sense, means that we have to set in place the rules and we have to act in such a way that we are constantly countering the concentration of power. And the only way to do that is as we as citizens step up to assume that power in our lives. And so this is, at, I think, the very heart of what is meant by citizenship. I'm reminded of that wonderful comment by Louis Brandeis, who served as a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court that the only title in a democracy higher than that of president is the title of citizen. I love that. I love that. And I was just thinking also a very similar uh, comment by Thomas Jefferson in a letter he wrote saying that, in fact, his view of, of the republic was of where every person sees himself as a participant in a ward republic, not just participating on election day, but every day. The precinct level. Right, the precinct level republic, exactly. So uh, I think that spirit of understanding that you know, it is through participation of each of us that we claim our true humanity and we avoid tyranny. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. There is no more powerful assemblage of the U.S. government than the State of the Union speech. When the President travels from the White House to the U.S. Capitol to address a joint session of Congress with justices of the Supreme Court in attendance. 
but how inaccessible this scene can appear to the common man or woman outside the corridors of power, unconnected to the network of lobbyists and corporations that drive Washington decision-making from health care to warfare. Congressman John Lewis. Why do you think so many Americans feel that they're pushed out of the political process now, that the government is unresponsive to them? There's a feeling in America today that the government and those of us at the highest level of government, whether it be the president or members of Congress, that we do not respond, that we are not listening to their cries, their moans, their pleas. And they tend to drop out. They tend to give up. And there's a calling, there's a urgency that is growing in America today, saying to the American people, don't drop out. Don't give up. Don't give in. But come back, return, get in the arena, and be involved. Do what I call get in the way. Get in the way? Get in the way. Another generation of American got in the way. When I was growing up in rural Alabama during the 40s and the 50s, and we see those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I saw segregation and racial discrimination. I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why segregation? Why racial discrimination? And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. on the old radio. And it inspired me to get in the way. And it's time for Americans of all faith, whether we be Democrats or Republicans of independence, to find a way to get in the way. What are you calling on Americans to get in the way of? I'm calling on Americans not to be silent, not to be complacent. We spend hundreds, thousands, millions, and billions of dollars to engage in unbelievable military efforts abroad, but we should be using our limited resources to build and not to kill, to provide health care for all of our people, to educate all of our children, to protect the environment, and to save this little planet we call Earth. When you see the country moving in their own direction, when you see your fellow humankind not being treated the way you think they should be treated. You have an obligation. You have a mandate. You have a mission to speak up, to speak out, to dissent, to protest, to go to the polls and vote. Too many, too many Americans are not participating in the democratic process. They're not voting, and the vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a, in a democracy, and we need to use it. When people disengage, when they are cynical, what effect does that have on the functioning of our democratic system? Oh, when people become cynical, when people are not engaged, when people drop out, 
it tend to send to elected officials, to people at the highest level of government, you know, it's okay. We can do what we want to do. And so many occasions, we have the tendency to do things in the name of the people without the people approval. Or sometimes without the people's knowledge. One of the most significant recent examples of public unawareness was the widely assumed premise for the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. More than two-thirds of Americans that year in a Washington Post poll believed that Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein was personally involved in the September 11, 2001 attacks. Although much coverage by mainstream media failed to challenge this perception, the claim was disproved by the bipartisan 9-11 Commission and eventually disavowed by President George W. Bush. But this lack of public knowledge provided the basis for a war. John Bogle believes many people are just not paying attention. They take our system for granted. They think this country can go on and on despite these failures. They don't, they don't take like a personal responsibility uh, for the way this, this, the system is working. I think they fall very short on those areas. And a part of that is actually exemplified not only by misinformation, but by being uninformed. Uh, we did a poll at the Constitution Center, and I think 65% of, the, of those questioned could name the, the three stooges, and uh, only 25 or 35% could name the three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. Well, that's pretty basic civics. And uh, so it's a lack of education, and then it's a willingness to, to look around and think, I'll leave this to somebody else to do. You're listening to a Humankind Special, A Union of Citizens. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Part 1, visit our website, humanmedia.org. Formal classes in civics education were once commonplace in American public schools. Today, civics lessons have declined. But the problem is not just inadequate information. Many Americans have tuned out because they feel our top-heavy system doesn't represent their needs, that getting involved wouldn't make a difference. Francis Moore LaPay is author of Getting a Grip. Well, I think that people feel despair, understandably, even if they don't know my 61 to 1 figure, you know, 61 lobbyists for every one person that we've elected. They sense that. 90% of people uh, in America believe that corporations have too much sway over what happens in Washington. So they feel they've been thrown out of their home of democracy. And of course, they many then feel it is hopeless. Why bother? And I still remember standing at a train uh, a commuter train in Philadelphia during the last election passing out literature. And this man just, you know, almost physically pushing me aside as I tried to hand him a flyer and saying, ah, you know, vote? Are you crazy? They're all scum, you know? Meaning they, the candidates are all scum. Yeah. I mean, why would I even bother to take your flyer? Are you telling me, forget it, this person that you're advocating is just as bad as all of them. They're all, if they're in politics, they're all not to be respected. Why would I waste my time? And that look of total disdain on his face and that look of pain. George Bush's healthcare attack against John Kerry, not true. The Kerry plan gives doctors and patients the power to make medical decisions 
not insurance In which direction would John Kerry lead? Kerry voted for the Iraq War, opposed it, supported it, and now opposes it again. He bragged about voting In recent surveys, the vast majority of Americans were turned off by campaign attack ads and believe that negative campaigning undermines democracy. Even so, the campaign spin masters calibrate their messages based on careful focus group testing. How very distant today's electoral system would seem to America's founders. The Constitution they crafted was intended to encourage the highest conduct by elected officials. John Bogle. And the idea then was that they would use their best judgment. Yes, they would listen to their constituency, but they wouldn't do a poll and say, I'll vote the way the majority wants. I'm going to have a bigger interest than the interest of my state, my parochial interest, and it's going to be interest of the nation and the interest of our society. And uh, we don't really have that as much anymore. This preoccupation with poll testing ideas, poll testing political slogans, do you feel that it has a deleterious effect on our, the functioning of our democratic society? Incredibly deleterious for two reasons. I mean, one of them is pretty obvious, and that is uh, it's, 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 not a, it's not a process that appeals uh, to the better angels, quoting Lincoln, the better angels of our nature. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a quick quote, um, for life or for choice, please, uh, for gun control, uh, for or against, uh, everything is simplified in, in, in areas that are extraordinarily complex. And the soundbite is a way of saying, if I use the right words, and it's a big, you know, people try and change the words, death tax compared to inheritance tax, for example, to try and shape the public appraisal of the issue in a, in a greatly oversimplified way. These are all highly complex matters without any easy answers, as always. But in another way, the whole soundbite thing has a second problem that may be more serious than the first, and that is money. Uh, all those sound bites cost money, and, and that cost of money corrupts the system. I wish I could be, you know, use a less escalatory word than corrupts the system. The more money you have, the greater your influence, or as the politicians are wont to say, or the corporations are wont to say, access. Uh, we're not buying votes, we're just buying access to our representatives. What do you think they're really buying? I think they're buying a vote. There is no investment with a return on capital for a corporation any higher than a political contribution. $100,000 might save you a billion. Uh, you know, a good return on 100000 of capital might be $15,000 a year. Uh, we've, it's totally out of proportion, and you I find it deeply troublesome. Campaigns for the presidency currently exceed a billion dollars per election cycle with most candidates now opting out of the public finance system that was intended to contain the political arms race. Once in office, those who win elections can expect to hear again from their big donors. Yes, we have to get the control of wealth out of the system, or people are correct in feeling that their system is bought. Author Francis Moore LaPay. That, as Greg Pallast, the author, has written, we have the best democracy money can buy. And, of course, he would say, and I would say, that's not good enough. That's not going to allow us to solve the problems. Just take the crisis of global heating. People recognize that unless we actually have a voice uh, through our government to make policies, to, to begin to reverse the control of the fossil fuel industries in this country, uh, then we can't address this most threatening problem of the planet. 
I think it's so sad that in our democracy, I, I'm not so sure that's what our founding fathers had in mind, that uh, all these many years later, that it would take so much money to run for president. Uh, I think it's a shame and, and a disgrace that many of our elections have become like, like an auction, going to the highest bidder. That's not how Congressman John Lewis always saw elections. As a nonviolent civil rights activist in 1965, his skull was severely fractured when Alabama state troopers and local officers broke up a demonstration in Selma dramatizing the right of blacks to vote. Two years earlier, at age 23, he addressed the 1963 March on Washington at the Lincoln Memorial. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. As someone who sacrificed a lot during the civil rights movement in the United States, for you, how precious is the right of an American to cast a ballot in an election? For me, the right of a person, a citizen, to cast a ballot, to vote, is precious, almost sacred. Some of my friends, some of my colleagues, during the height of the movement, gave their very lives. I gave a little blood, and so it's, to me, it mean everything. And that's why some of us work very, very hard to make it possible for everybody to get out and be able to cast that vote. The vote is the most powerful, non-violent tool, non-violent instrument that we have in our democracy, and we must use it. We live in a country where we we're supposed to have freedom of the press and religious freedom. But I think to some degree, there's a sense of fear in America today that if you said the wrong thing, what some people would consider what is wrong, if you step out of line, if you dissent, whether you be an entertainer, that somehow, in some way, this government or the forces to be will come down on you. Look at what happened to the Dixie Chicks when they dissented against That's a very the rock war. People don't want to. People don't want to get in trouble. But I, I think there's a need for Americans to get in trouble. What I call good trouble, necessary trouble. So, so you think that fear is a factor? I think fear is a factor. Right after 9/11, you had people saying over and over again that you're siding with the terrorists. You're siding with the people that killed our fellow citizens. The first challenge is to rethink the role of fear in our lives and to understand that if we are going to live the good life of engagement, that we have to understand fear in a very different way. Francis Moore LaPay. Walking taller with fear, to be true to ourselves and to our common sense and to reach out to those who are different from us, to engage in a conversation that 
may challenge some of our set beliefs. I, I think whether it be through our church communities, through our workplaces, working for greater uh, participation in the workplace, in our community, in our schools, where we're engaging young people in actual problem solving in communities rather than simply rote learning or service learning where they're learning to do for others rather than co-creating for themselves. I'm saying that the, the, the challenge of, of true citizenship is to reflect on what are the openings in our lives to be true to our own common sense and our values. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Kathy Graham. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated, program development and support provided by Short Media. We're distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of A Union of Citizens, is Humankind Program number 117 from PRI Public Radio International. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.